Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you will speak to us as I read it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now night and day on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Thank you. Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah this morning. This is after Second Chronicles. And we'll be starting a new series in Nehemiah. I've entitled this series, God's Work, God's Way. And Nehemiah really is about being, Nehemiah being called back to Jerusalem to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that have been broken down. But really for us as a church, I think this is a pivotal time to do this series because I think we as a church are ready to begin to build on what God wants to do. We're healthy. We're moving forward. God is blessing. And I think it's time for us to say, Lord, what do you want me to do as your servant? Now, I don't know what kind of movies you guys like. I tend to like action films. I'm a typical guy. And I kind of like the, the heroes in the action films that they take a stand for what is right and they're willing to fight for it and go for it. They're men of conviction or women of conviction. We'll see that Nehemiah is a man of conviction. And God is going to call Nehemiah for a purpose that he has set in place to move forward and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But when we're talking about particularly this book, we, we have to take a look at the historical context of Nehemiah. Understand that when Solomon died in 931 B.C., Israel split up into two entities. You had the northern tribes, which took the name of Israel. There were ten tribes. And then you had the southern tribes, which were made of two tribes. They were known as Judah. And Israel 
had many evil kings, and they sinned against God, and they led the people of God into sin, and they caused them to worship idols, and God judged them. He sent Assyria in 722 B.C. to conquer the people and literally to pull them from the land of Israel. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah was more faithful. They had some good kings, some bad kings, but God extended, if you will, the reign of Judah for about 300 more years. But they too started to worship idols. And so God brought judgment on Judah, and Babylon came. And in 605 B.C., sacked the city, and in three different deportations, pulled the people from the land. Totally destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and broke down the walls, and left it in embers. And they carried the people back to Babylon. Now, God, though, hadn't forgot His people. And God had vowed that after 70 years, He would return the people back to the land. And He did this with three different leaders. The first leader that brought some people back was by the name of Zerubbabel in 538 B.C. Then he laid it on the heart of a second leader. His name was Ezra in 458 B.C. and then also Nehemiah in 445 B.C. Now, Nehemiah, he was a a layman. He had what we'd call a, a normal job, but he was in the right position at the right time for God to call this man and use him to fulfill what he wanted him to fulfill. And what we will see in Nehemiah are character traits, realities about the heart of this man. He's the kind of man or person that God calls into service. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, am I the kind of person that God would call into service? So what kind of person does God call into service? First thing we'll see here is that a person with a heart for God in His people. Nehemiah was a person with a heart for God and His people. Now, Jesus says, you you will know my disciples for the love they have for one another. You love God, and you love God's people. Nehemiah was that kind of man. Now, I want to read back verses 1 through 4 to set this up. It says, the word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah. Now, it happened in the month of Cheslev. In the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So again, the background, in 605 B.C., Babylon comes and sacks Judah. And then in these three deportations, they pull the people out. Babylon absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. Totally broke down the walls of the temple. Destroyed the walls surrounding the city and sacked the whole city. But God doesn't forget His people. He's going to return the people back to the land. And the way he does that is he raises up an army against Babylon, the Medes and the Persians. And the Medes and the Persians, they attack Babylon, they conquer Babylon, and then from that a leader emerges and his name is Cyrus. And he oversees what would be known as the Persian kingdom. Now God can move on the heart of anyone. 
And He can stir the heart even of the one who has the hardest heart before Him. And He stirs the heart of this Persian king. He's a pagan. And He moves him to free God's people. Let me read from 2 Chronicles 36, 22 and 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that He sent a proclamation throughout His kingdom And he also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. And whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him and let him go up. Through the mouth of Jeremiah, literally Jeremiah, hundreds of years before Cyrus even lived, puts it in writing. Cyrus sees that on the pages and wow, he lets the people go. Now, Cyrus never became a Jew. He never became a follower of the living God, but he understands, wow, this God is powerful. And he moves. Why? Because God moved on his heart. Do you understand the sovereignty and the power of God? Let me read from you Proverbs 21.1. It says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wishes. God's ultimate plan was to have the people back in the land. And so he moves on this pagan king's heart, and he responds, and he gives out this decree that now the people can go back and fill the land. And so Cyrus, he sends out this proclamation to release the Jews. And the first, that one go, the first person that goes back and leads is Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes back and God laid it on Zerubbabel's heart to rebuild the temple. And so he puts the Jews together at that task and the temple is rebuilt by 516 B.C. But there was still a problem in the land. The people's heart weren't totally surrendered to the Lord. So God lays it on Ezra to go back to the land, and he brings more people with him. Ezra arrives in 445 B.C., and he calls the people back into worshiping the true and living God. But there was still a problem. The city was still in shambles. The walls were broken down. The gates were still burned with fire. So God is going to lay it on the heart of Nehemiah. He's going to stir Nehemiah's heart to go back, to do this work of rebuilding the walls. Now understand, Nehemiah was not a priest. He's not a prophet. Verse 11 says he was a cupbearer. Now when we hear cupbearer, we often think, oh, he's like a waiter, right? No, 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 no. In those days, a cupbearer had a a high position. Matter of fact, a cupbearer, basically they would eat or drink the wine that was given to the king before he would get it. And if it was poisoned or if it was drugged, he would take the hit. And so with that, they became a trusted confidant of the king. fact is, they were considered literally like the right-hand man of the king. They had strong influence with the king, more so than anyone else in the kingdom except maybe the queen. And so here you have Nehemiah. God has him in this position where he has a voice into the king's life. And God is going to touch his heart in such a way Call him into service. Nehemiah is God's man. He has a heart for God. He has a heart for his people. Do you have a heart for God? Do you love God? Do you love his people? Because that's how God moves. He, he moves his people to service. Now, 
It starts here in verse 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakalah. There really isn't much known about his father. By the way, he takes a Hebrew name, which is interesting because in that time, many other people took the name of the locals, but not Nehemiah. He holds on to a Hebrew name here. And we don't know much about his father other than what's written here. But Nehemiah wants to check up on on God's people and, and on Jerusalem. And so his brother had come from Jerusalem to the area of Susa where Nehemiah was. Now understand, they didn't have a way to really communicate the way we do today. They didn't have CNN. They didn't have Fox News. They didn't have internet. They didn't even have a mail system. It's word of mouth. And so Nehemiah's brothers been there. And so Nehemiah asks him, And he basically asked him two questions. What about the Jews who escaped and have survived that are in Jerusalem? And what about God's city? What about God's people? And what about God's city? And what Nehemiah hears, it shakes him. I mean, it shakes him to the core. Look at verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with with fire. So first, the people in the land. So understand that when Babylon took the people out and took them off to Babylon, they left a small remnant there. They were probably the poor and the feeble. Maybe they left some to take care of the land. But then you have this influx of other Jews that came from Babylon back. And by the way, most of the Jews did not come back. Most of them stayed in Babylon. They had made a life there. But you have some that come back. And so under Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple. Under Ezra, he stirs their hearts to suddenly say, yes, this is our God. But guys, the city is still destroyed. And there are enemies in the land that hate the Jews. They have easy access to get into the city and harm the Jews. And right here, it says they're in great distress. That means misery or calamity. Not only that, it says that they're under reproach. That means that people are slandering. So not only are they suffering physically, but they're an approach to those in the land. They hate them. And so you have Nehemiah. He heals that, hears that, and, and, and it breaks his heart. And not only that, he begins to ask about the city. This is God's city, his land. And he finds out that the walls are broken down, that it's in ruins Now, the way Nehemiah responds, it reveals the character of the man. Look at verse 4. It says, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, a godly man or woman, that God has touched their heart, they'll have strong emotions when God's people or God's work are hurting And Nehemiah is moved deeply. Now, it's very much, if you you remember last week, I talked about David, right? David and Goliath. And when Goliath started to blaspheme God, it it stirred in him an anger. I'm going to fight because they're blaspheming the holy God. In the same way, Nehemiah's heart is stirred, but first he's stirred to mourning because he sees that the people are hurting and the city is broken down. He cares about what God cares about. And as God's people, we are to care about what God cares about. We are to be stirred inside. 
because God's people are suffering. And the things that matter to God, it matters to us. Nehemiah, Nehemiah, he has a heart for God. He has a heart for his people. And he understands that the judgment of God had come upon the people because of their sin. But he also knows the heart of God, that God is a loving Father. As a matter of fact, I think he's remembering back to Ezekiel's word in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. Ezekiel said this, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? But both Israel and Judah hadn't turned back. They had worshipped idols. God brought judgment, but then his blessing was back on the people. After 70 years, he brings them back into the land, but things were not good. Matter of fact, they were tragic. And Nehemiah sees that. First, he recognizes the need. And a man of God and a woman of God that seeks God will see needs that God points out. And so he sees the need there. He sees they're struggling. Everything's broken down. The people are suffering. And not only does he recognize the need, he then identifies with the need. It becomes personal. It's not just a bunch of people out there. No, they're God's people. That means I care about them. I feel like I need to do something to reach them, to help them. Guys, in our day and age, we get so much news, so much information, but isn't it almost secondhand, thirdhand? And, and unfortunately, even in, in God's house with God's people, very often we become almost desensitized to God's people that are struggling and hurting. But God doesn't want us desensitized. He wants our heart to ache with His people when they ache. He wants us to care about what He cares about. One commentator, his name is Alan Redpath, he said this, he said, let us learn this lesson from Nehemiah. You never lighten the load unless you first have felt the pressure in your own soul. You're never used of God to bring blessing until God has opened your eyes and made you see things as they really are. Nehemiah sees things as they really are. He recognizes it, but it doesn't just stay there. It's not just intellectual. It touches his heart. And he's moved, and he begins to weep over the very ruins that are broken down. Guys, it doesn't stay emotion. It doesn't just feel bad and let it stay there. No, what happens is now he moves into action. Look at verse 4. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He recognizes the need. It moves him, but he doesn't stay in that emotion. It moves him to action. What's his first response? I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek the God of heaven. And he begins to fast and he prays. Nehemiah not only had a heart for God, Nehemiah was a man who talked to God. Now understand, if if you're to be a person that God uses, that God calls into service, how do you have a relationship unless you talk to the person? (laughs) You don't. And it's the same way with God. Do you have a prayer life? Do you know our Father? Do you love Him? Do you love His people? Because that's Nehemiah. He recognizes the need. He identifies with the need. And then he runs to his Father. Now, I don't know about you, but God calls us to action. He calls us to be people who serve Him. 
And I don't know what you're doing right now for the Lord in service, but I want to encourage you, if you're not serving the Lord, you should. It's part of our Christian walk and life. And so often what happens with people, particularly in the American church, is, is we're very good at showing up on Sundays and taking in, but we're not very good at giving out. We don't go into action. And, and God calls us to be people of action, to move when He lays it on our heart. Now, I don't know about you, but are you an avoider? I can tend to be an avoider. Here's an example. A couple of years ago, we had this company come out to do a termite inspection. And so they go around the house and they see if there's any termites. And around here, actually, you get termites pretty regular. And so they have to do little minor sprays and all that kind of stuff. But also, they look for dry rot in the wood. And so he, he showed me in my patio that I had a couple areas of dry rot. He took this little hook thing and he poked it. I had two boards that were bad. And he said, we're going to need to replace that. And they had to take some other, it's going to cost me about 300 bucks. Well, I said, mm, I'll avoid that one. I let it go. The problem with dry rot is it spreads. So two years ago, 300 bucks. Last week I corrected it, over $2,000. Don't wait. When God calls you to service, He wants you to move into action. It reminds me of Eli. Do you guys remember the story of Eli in 1 Samuel? Now, Samuel is going to be the judge of Israel. He's going to be a prophet. And his mother sends Samuel to Eli to live in the temple. And then there's one night that Samuel hears Eli call him, and he goes, yeah, what do you want? And Eli says, it wasn't me. And he goes back three different times. And finally, Eli goes, oh, wait a minute. I think that's probably God. Go back and listen. And this is what he tells him in 1 Samuel 3, 9. Say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then Samuel goes back and he says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But I want you to hear what the Lord tells little Samuel. And he's speaking about Eli. Eli was an avoider. For Samuel 3, 11 and 13, it says, the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day, it will carry, carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I've told him, that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Man, verse 13, Eli knew that his sons were sinning, but he didn't do anything about it. He avoided it. God was calling him into service, take care of your sons. I won't listen to that. I'm avoiding it. God calls us to serve him. When you hear his call, move. Because the person that God uses is a person who loves God, loves his people, first thing. Second thing, what kind of person does God call? A person with a prayerful and humble attitude. A person who prays, but a person also who's humble before the Lord. Look with me at verses 4 through 7. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, night and day, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which you have sinned against you, which we have sinned against you. I and my Father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. 
and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. So again, Nehemiah, after he hears this news about the city and about God's people, he, he moves to action, and he begins to fast, and he begins to pray. Now, fasting is something that's known as a Christian discipline. And honestly, in America, it's not practiced very often by many Christians anymore. But I want to share with you what one commentator said about fasting. He said, what does it mean to fast? It means you miss a meal for one major purpose, zeroing in on your walk with God and then seeking God for what He's laid on your heart and waiting for Him to move. Zeroing in on your walk and seeking Him for the way He's pressing you and asking for His help. It's, it's humbling yourself before God. Now, fasting is unique because think about if you don't have to eat, how much time you're going to save and how much time now you'd have to pray. I don't know how long you take to eat. I take, I'd say, half an hour. It's three times a day minimum, and particularly lately, five times a day. So let's just say you get an extra two and a half hours. You can spend that time seeking the Lord. Now, Nehemiah had wept. He had a broken spirit before God. God is looking for a broken and contrite heart. He's looking for the humble person, the person who humbles himself before him. And can I tell you, there is nothing more humbling than coming to God in prayer because you're, you're saying to God, I cannot do this. So I come to you, O Holy Father. It is only by your strength and the way that you move that I understand that this is going to be done. Lord, I'm moved. I want to move out, but before I move out, I'm trusting in you that you'll help, that you'll strengthen, and that you will move in power. And what Nehemiah does in verse 5 is he begins with adoration and praise. Look at verse 5. He says, I beseech you, O Lord God, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He gives God his rightful place. He is great. He is awesome. He is holy. He is above all. And he puts God on the throne because that's where God is. And he honors him as God. He begins with adoration. Have you ever prayed the ACTS acronym? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. He begins right there, adoration. And he begins praising God. And his prayer here reveals a heart of dependence on God. He's saying, I beseech you, Lord, I seek you. I need your help, God. This is never going to happen unless you move in power. Please, God, move in power. And then he calls upon God's compassion and he calls upon God's character because he knows that God is one who honors his promises. Look at the second half of verse 5. Who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He knows the very character and nature in God. God, you're loving. You're loving. Your loving kindness is present. But God, I also know that you're the one that you, when you say something, particularly in your word, Lord, you keep your promises. And Nehemiah is saying, Lord, I, I want to honor you and I want to follow that promise that you're keeping right there. Restore the land. You've promised it. Now, Nehemiah right here, he displays a humble heart because then he goes into confessing. If you look, he, he begins to confess. He understands that the judgment has come upon the people. And he understands that the sins of the Israelite it caused that judgment. And it resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. 
But he also understands the promises of God that God will restore the land and will bring the people back in the land. That's happened. The people are there. But he also knows that repentance has to happen. And he begins to confess. Look at verse 6. He says, he acknowledges the people's sin and also his own. He says, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel. He starts right there. He's saying, Father, my fathers have sinned. They have sinned against you, Lord, and you've judged them. And I see that judgment, and I understand why you did it. I confess their sins openly. Guys, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6. He says, which we have sinned against you. He says, land, my father's house has sinned. Not only does he leave it on them, he doesn't blame shift. He begins to say, Lord, I'm part of it. Only by the grace of God go I, Lord. I know that they've sinned, but I'm just as guilty. If you drill down to my heart, man, you're going to see that same kind of sin there. Rotten to the core, Lord, but only by your grace, God. And he calls and he takes responsibility for his own sin before God. He's saying, Lord, please hear these prayers. I confess not only their sin, but my sin. I and my Father have sinned. This is so important. The Lord uses the humble person that acknowledges their sin. And oftentimes, when there's strife and when there's brokenness in a relationship with a loved one, a spouse, a child, in a work environment, so often we say, see, see what they've done, God, and we forget about the three fingers pointing back at us, right? And we need to say, Lord, first start with me. What's my part in this issue? Where have I been the one that's failed, Lord? I confess, I'm just as guilty, just as guilty as they are. Going to God in prayer, it puts things in the right perspective. So if you're having trouble in this area with other people, with a job issue, maybe it's best not only to start saying, Lord, there's an issue here with them, but God, I think there's an issue with me. Search my heart, O oh God. Now, Nehemiah isn't general about his prayer. He's very specific. Look at verse 7. He says, we have acted corruptly against you. We have not kept your commandments nor your statutes, nor your ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. And there's two things that are very important to see here. First, Nehemiah recognizes that he's part of the larger problem. He just confesses it, Lord, I'm also part of that issue. I confess it before you. But second, he calls himself a sinner. In other words, what I'm saying is he has an accurate view of himself. He knows his own heart before God. Now, guys, this isn't worm theology. Oh, God, I'm a worm. And you could never use me, such a worm. No, in Christ, we're loved. We're changed. But it's still being honest. It's still being accurate. Saying, God, I see my own heart. And so I confess it. But now I want to be used by you, Lord. Cleanse me. He was honest before God in prayer. And the kind of honesty I'm talking about is, is the kind of honesty that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 where he says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. What he's talking about is beware of pride. 
again, Lord, I'm having so many problems with this mate of mine, and it's all her fault, and I can't believe she would do that thing, and I can't believe, and, you know, and, I, and on and on about this person or whoever it is, and you forget to say, Lord, but what about my own heart? And remember, the Bible is very clear about that. God is actively against pride, but He's actively for the humble. Literally, the way the Bible reads is God hates pride, the prideful heart. But He loves the person that's willing to be honest before Him and humble before Him. And particularly in conflict, we have to be careful to remain humble before God. And so, Nehemiah brings it before God. Now, Chip Ingram says this about humility. Humility is a broken spirit that results in a renewed commitment to fulfill God's agenda. Humility is a broken spirit that results in a renewed commitment to fulfill God's agenda. And that's exactly where Nehemiah was. He had a broken spirit, but he wanted God's agenda. Now, I was looking online the other day, and I came across something called a puffer fish. You guys know what a puffer fish is? Ronnie, you want to put a picture of that up there? That's a puffer fish. Now, I don't know if you know this about puffer fish. They're interesting. I did a little research on this. They can expand their body with both air and water and make it several times the normal size. But what's unique about the puffer fish, the way they fight off enemies is they have a toxin in them. And their toxin is very, very poisonous. It's 1,200 times more poisonous than cyanide. Matter of fact, one puffer fish could kill 30 adults. Okay? But I relate this to pride. Sometimes we puff ourselves up with pride, but guys, can I tell you, it's toxic. It ruins relationships, both with people, but also with the Lord. Are you a puffer fish, is the question. Don't be a puffer fish. (laughs) Honor the Lord. Be humble. Two things. A person with a heart for God and His people, a person with a prayerful and humble attitude. So what kind of person does God call into service? Here's the third thing. A person who knows and trusts God's Word. A person who knows and trusts God's Word. You know what's amazing about this message? It almost is in line with my message last week with David. The same things that made David the man that he is to fight against such a foe is the same kind of man that makes Nehemiah who he is. And the kind of person that God wants is a person that loves His Word and knows His Word. Do you know it? Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep the commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote parts of heaven, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. So he relates back to the Word of God right there in verse 8, and he says, remember the Word which you commanded Moses. So Nehemiah, he's still in prayer, and in prayer, he goes to the Word of God, doesn't he? And he says, Lord, remember the way you commanded Moses? What does that mean? He knows the Scriptures. What makes him the man he is, what makes him usable to God, is he understands God's Word. That means he understands the heart of God. And he begins to, to, to claim the promises of God find, found right there in Scripture. And there's a twofold promise here. The first promise he knows 
is that if the people disobey, guess what? It means judgment, right? He knows that. In fact, as I think he's thinking back, Moses wrote Leviticus, and Leviticus 26, verses 1 through 13, talk about the blessings of God. And they talk about, hey, if you honor God and His commandments, guess what? God will bless you. But starting in verse 14, guess what? Second truth, if you disobey, brings judgment. Let me read that for you, Leviticus 26, 14. It's a warning. But if you do not obey me and do not carry out all these commandments, if instead you reject my statutes and if your soul abhors the ordinances so as not to carry out my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption and fever that will waste away the eyes and cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, and your enemies will eat it up. And I will set my face against you so that you will be struck down before your enemies. And those who hate you will rule over you, and you will flee when no one is pursuing you. And that's exactly what happened, that last verse, to them. Babylon struck them down and pursued them and carried them away. And Judah had been experiencing the very ramifications of that sin, disobedience. They worshipped false gods. And it made me think that maybe some of you, your lives are in ruins and you've disobeyed the Lord and you know it. Now, can I tell you as a Christian, the Bible's very clear on this, as Christians, God does not bring judgment on His sons and daughters, but it says that He disciplines those He loves. And discipline is always from the heart of God with love. But discipline is always there to draw you back to what? The grace of God. And so if you've offended God and you're living in a way that dishonors God, I'm encouraging you as the pastor of this church, turn back. Do exactly what Nehemiah did. I confess my own heart before you, Lord. I see it. And he will restore the brokenhearted. Nehemiah knows that. The city was in ruins. He confessed his sins. He repented. He understands the Word. He understands God's promise. Why? Because the Word of God lived in him. Now, Paul puts it like this in Colossians 3. Colossians 3, 16, he says, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Nehemiah had the words of God dwelling richly within him. And when the Word of God dwells within you, do you understand that it's a protection for you? Because it, it gives you wisdom and guidance, and, and you can lean on the promises of God. And so Nehemiah not only understood the first part, which means judgment, but he understood the second part, which meant blessing and restoration. Look at verse 9. He said, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you have been scattered and were in the most parts of heaven, I will gather them and will bring them back to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. Nehemiah is a man of God. He knows God's word. He's knowing that he's speaking about Deuteronomy here where Moses wrote Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 19 and 20 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, and by loving the Lord your God, by obeying His voice, and by holding fast to Him. For this is your life and the length of your days, 
that you may live in the land which your Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. He's calling them back to faithfulness so that they may live in the land that their father had given them. Nehemiah wasn't wavering in unbelief, but he leaned on God's word. And we are to lean on God's word. Do you understand that the promises of God are there for us to strengthen us and help us in time of need? As a matter of fact, Jesus gives many promises. I want to share three of them with you that are their go-to verses for me. One of them, Jesus says in Matthew 11, that I promise that because your burden is heavy, you can bring that burden to me and lay it on me, and I'll give you my burden, but my burden is light and it's easy. Jesus also says in Matthew 6, that if you will seek first the kingdom of God, I then will add everything that you need. He says in John chapter 3, if you'll put your trust in me, if you'll believe in me, I will give you eternal life, life everlasting. And we could go on and on with the promises of God. But Nehemiah gets that. And he says, Lord, you've promised to bring your people back, but you've also promised to protect them in the land. And verse 10 says, they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He's saying, Lord, remember your promise. Work and move by your power because Nehemiah had confessed, he'd repented, and now he claims the promises, and he's expecting God to move. He was a man of the Word. I was reading National Geographic, a little article yesterday, and it talked about this couple that they, they wanted to somehow discover treasure, and they actually did. Now, this couple live in California, and they have a fair amount of land here, and they used to walk their dog quite a bit. And in 2014, they're walking their dog along this trail that they took every day for years, and all of a sudden, they notice this can kind of sticking out on this hill. And they grab a stick, and they dig out this can. They take it home, and they open it up, and inside are $20 gold pieces. Yeah, and I guess they're called double eagles. Now, they weren't just in average condition. They were in mint condition. Well, they went back to the site and they found a number of other cans. As a matter of fact, they found 1,411 coins. Now, in this article I read, the estimated value is somewhere around $10 million. But they didn't know they had this value. They literally were sitting on a pot of gold and they didn't even know it. And here's where I'm bringing it to you. Do you understand what you have in your lap? It is more valuable than gold. The Word of God is so valuable. As a matter of fact, David said that its value was far above gold, better than the drippings of a honeycomb. We have it. How many Bibles you got at home? Guys, I got over 20. But do you know it? That's the key. Nehemiah knew it. And so God called him into service. Three things. He was a person with a heart for God and his people. He was prayerful and humble. He knows and trusts God's word. And here's the last one. Nehemiah was available. It's simple. In his heart, he said, yes, Lord, when God called him. Look at verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you that you may hear, that your ear may be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. And now I was the cupbearer to the king. 
So again, he begins with, I beseech you, Lord. I, I turn to you. I, I, I reach out to you, God. May your ear be attentive, Lord. Don't let it go in one ear and out the other, basically is what he's saying. Have you ever prayed this, Lord? Would you hear my prayer? Now, Jesus tells us to actually pray this way. I want to read you what Jesus says. This is how we're to pray as Christians. John 14, 13 through 15, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, what Jesus is saying there, he's saying, pray in my name. He's not saying, you know, my name isn't like a lucky rabbit's foot. Don't tack it on the end of your prayer and think I'm going to answer it because what he's saying is that you pray in my will, in my name. In his name means you pray the way that he would pray. You pray the kind of prayer that honors him. And when your prayer lines up with the heart of Christ, guess what? He's going to answer that prayer, but it doesn't stop there as prayer. He then says in verse, verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He gets moving. It's not passive, it's active. And Nehemiah is the same way. He says to God, make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. He's talking about the king. Nehemiah is praying, he's literally laying his life on the line. In that culture, you don't go to the king and, and ask for anything. Unless he summons you and he asks you what you want, you don't say a word. But Nehemiah is willing to, to, to lay it on the line before the king to make this request that he might send him back to Judah. And he's asking God to make him successful. When? Today. Lord, I'm available. Lord, you call me, I'm in. If I see a need and there's a need, Lord, I'm available. I want to be used by you. And basically, it's this principle. Prayer is primary, but it's not just theoretical. Do you get it? It's primary. We always go to God. But then we say, yes, Lord, I'm willing. When you make it clear and you've called me to service, Lord, I'm going to move available to you. It's interesting. We kind of have a rotating cycle for our evangelism class. I had to throw it in there somehow, guys. But every time I announce it from the pulpit, no kidding, almost every time, someone will walk up to me and says, you know, I really want to take the evangelism class. I want to learn how to share the gospel. I'm saying, great. I said, let me share with you what that is. Not only do you learn how to share the gospel in a classroom, from the second week out, we actually go on the streets and we share the gospel. And they're like, Aah. right? Like, well, I just thought we were going to learn to share the gospel, not actually do it. They weren't available. No, we actually do it. You not only learn, but you do it. And, and so often I think sometimes what happens, and it often happens in the American church, we get kind of excited and say, Lord, I'm available but we don't put it into action. And I don't know how many of you are not serving, so I'm calling you to action. Because God is always calling His people to serve Him. It, is, it shows the health of your walk with Christ. And as your pastor, I'm encouraging you, be faithful when He calls. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You, Father, for this example of Nehemiah. Lord, a man who was called by you to serve and then he moved, Father. And he moved in faithfulness. And so now, Lord, I just pray for our church that you would use us, Lord, for your glory.
Lord, as you show us where there's needs, I pray that we might respond and be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.